Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's our time. Watch it happen. Wait, Equality once and for all. That a new day is on the Welcome back to Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that explores the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara. I'm a film critic and author of the book of the same name as this podcast. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the role of film critics. We'll be discussing the gender balance in film criticism, the impact that critics can have on the film industry at large, and the importance of getting diverse voices and opinions on a wide range of films. Now, today we'll be hearing from Rebecca Harrison, who's a writer, film critic, academic and broadcaster who contributes to outlets like Sight and Sound and the BBC. We'll also hear from Simran Hans, who's a film critic and broadcaster who writes for The Observer, Variety and many other publications. But first, I spoke to Anna Smith, who was the second woman to become the chair of the London Film Critics Circle. And she's also the host of the podcast Girls on Film, a weekly podcast focusing on women in film. And she's written and broadcast from many outlets, including the BBC, Time Out and The Guardian. So I asked Anna about her experience of the gender balance in film criticism. It's not great. It was pretty woeful when I started out, I must say. I mean, there were certain prominent female film critics and in particular editors of magazines, but we were definitely in, in more of a minority than we are now. So I would think, broadly speaking, things have improved. But still, you know, there was a research only in 2020 that said that it's 35% of critics are female. So still, that's really not good enough, is it, quite frankly? Anecdotally, I would say in my mind, it feels like things have moved on because being involved with the critic circle, um, I've noticed and also worked towards getting a lot of greater input from female film critics. So I think when we first started looking at it maybe five years ago um, or six years ago, we were on about 25% in the circle and that's gone up considerably. And all those women are very, very worthy and worthwhile. But obviously, it's still not 50-50. So a long way to go. And women of colour even even less well represented historically. Far less. And that's an issue across the board. Women of colour, men of colour, um, but women of colour in particular, really massively underrepresented. Um, and also I feel possibly undervalued by employers. One encouraging thing I do feel is that in recent, probably even in the last year, there's more talk about this, the conversation getting louder and employers are being made to feel accountable for this and having to actually answer questions about it and to even engage with it. I mean, it's not something that, you know, when I started out in 2020, anyone even really talked about very much. You know, it was just accepted that most film critics were male. I also asked Simran Hans how she experienced the gender disparity between men and women in film criticism. If you think back to some of the most kind of famous film critics across time, Pauline Kael is still the kind of first one that comes to mind for me. So it's not like 
in my head, I never felt like women weren't doing criticism. But I think in film criticism, perhaps more so than maybe other types of arts criticism, the balance does seem to be skewing more male, I guess. When you say in your experience, I have to cast my mind back to those early times when I was in screening rooms and kind of trying to remember what that felt like, because I do think it's changed in the sort of almost 10 years I've been doing this. It's very weird to go into a room and look around and see only blokes. It's very strange. I'm sure you've had that experience as well. And actually, I think... You know, it kind of depends on on sort of what space of film criticism you're working in. So I write for a broadsheet newspaper, which is a, a prestigious position. And in those positions of prestige, there's far fewer women who kind of have that regular slot and are given that chance to kind of claim their own authority. And so I think when I first went to screenings, it was sort of strange, but there was always one or two women around and actually when I started going to the week of release screenings uh, which are the press screenings they put on for people who predominantly write for broadsheets I was quite surprised to often be one of like maybe one or two women in the room so yeah I don't know if that kind of tracks with with your experience Helen. Very very much so yes 100% I mean it's sort of especially those week of release screenings it's it's maybe you maybe Wendy Ides you know two or three people a handful and I was always shocked when I went to let's say a rom rom com or something and there'd be all these women there and I'd be like where where did you come from do you write about films all the time why aren't you my friends who I see all the time you know it's are you not invited what happens you know it's weird and it's strange isn't it to think that like people are still magazines are still kind of assigning um the reviews along those gender lines because I know plenty of really smart men who love rom-coms with all their heart and also a lot of women who are not interested in them at all. And so it's bizarre to think that like the commissioning editors are still kind of stuck in those old ways. So do you think it is that 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 the, the editors are sort of whether consciously or unconsciously, you know, they think a film critic looks more like, let's say, Mark Kermode than like, let's say, Pauline Kael? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I do feel like that's that's changing and I think people editors especially are feeling the pressure to be more representative so I don't I don't know if that's still the case but I think historically in my kind of personal and anecdotal experiences people think of film culture as something that's nerdy anarchy geeky you have to like know lots of references you have to have done your homework you have to have spent your entire teenage years stuck in a basement watching lots of obscure things in people's minds maybe that's associated with a a kind of masculine geekiness but you know a lot of girls were in their basements too and Rebecca Harrison also recognizes the gender disparity but she's noticed that there are other hierarchies at play she told me about her experiences as a freelance film critic because I freelance and do film criticism on the side. So I've always felt slightly marginalised and not kind of at the centre of it anyway. And so I've, because of that, I've always felt quite grateful for whatever scraps I get thrown or for whatever, whatever access I get. So I'm not sure if that's always gendered as it is about the kind of hierarchies and power dynamics that exist within film criticism anyway. And then gender adds to that. 
I suppose one thing that I have noticed is, and other people have spoken about this far more eloquently, and it comes up on Twitter a lot, is pull quotes in trailers. So, for example, I've had pull quotes used in trailers for films where every other critic who is cited around mine has had their name put on it. So it's, you know, name and publication says this about our film, whereas mine will be, sometimes it's like the lead quote as well. And then they'll just put sight and sound. And I'm always like, come on, like sight and sound didn't write that. I wrote that. But because I'm what not, I'm like, fine. I'm not like a kind of known entity within film criticism. People don't think film criticism. And then my name springs into their head, like fine. But others, I see other people's names where I'm like, I don't know who that person is, but like how great that they have their, their quote in the trailer. And it does seem to be particularly gendered. And then when you start getting into the race dynamic of that as well, the amount of black women that I've seen saying, I've just, I've just been completely erased from this process. So that definitely plays into it. And, I, and also it's really noticeable at screenings as well, at film festivals, when you walk into the room and you know, and sometimes you think, well, I didn't get my pitch accepted or I didn't, I'm not getting to write about this, you know, queer women-centered film that I would have been able to offer a perspective on from lived experience or might have had an interesting perspective on. And you look around you and you think, okay, it's going to be one of these older, white, straight guys who gets to write that review and will inevitably trash the film or misunderstand the film so it it frustrates me often not even from my from a sense of like oh this is me missing out on the opportunity but also for what that means for the films that people are seeing and how the kind of discourse around them and how they're being marketed how they're going to be received by audiences like it has a knock-on effect and yeah that part of it for me is the most frustrating element of it Now, the interesting thing is that although film criticism is largely male-dominated nowadays, that hasn't always been the case in history. I asked Anna Smith why women were so much more visible in film criticism in the mid-20th century than they are now. I mean, it's interesting because I've spoken to a few of the older members of the critic circle who said that back in their day when they started, there were there were more women, and you know the high profile newspaper critics were women. Of course, we all know about you know Dennis Powell and Pauline Kael and such like. They said that when it actually became, it was seen as a bit of a woman's area, you know, or like lifestyle and, and, and fashion, you know, are wrongly seen as, as women's areas. Um, but apparently when film criticism started getting taken more seriously and given more space, guess what happened? Men wanted to get involved. Who else is good in the right? Pauline Kael. Yeah. She's never said a good thing about me yet. But you like her. Dirty old broad. <laughs> Since 1968, Pauline Kael has written film criticism for The New Yorker. I understood her voice, and I, and I related to her voice, even when I disagreed with her. We grew up reading Pauline Kael. She seemed to notice everything. There is a sense that people really don't know what they believe in anymore. She turned the movie review into this expressive vehicle. So that was an excerpt from the trailer for What She Said, The Art of Pauline Kael, a documentary by Rob Garver. Now, Pauline Kael was an American critic in the late 1960s and through the 1970s. She wrote principally for The New Yorker and for the women's magazine McCall's. And she was known for fiercely championing her favourite filmmakers and for shaping film debate. 
She was a major, major figure in the rise of the kind of new Hollywood, the directors who shaped the 1970s. But Cale was a controversial figure. Now, she's still very influential, but the way that she used her platform to speak out for new underdog filmmakers and sometimes to castigate the giants of the industry at the time drew her a lot of attention. Writing in Vanity Fair more recently, Lily Analik described Cale as an artist always and invariably, the equal to any director or actor she covered, the superior to most. But as Anna mentioned, as film criticism became more prestigious, so people like Cale became an outlier. More men came to dominate the conversation in her wake. She didn't so much open doors for women as inspire men to try to do the same thing she did. So I asked Anna Smith about the effect this gender imbalance has on how films are received by audiences. Definitely. I mean, if you look at the Women and Hollywood website, there's a lot of research there from various outlets that shows that, you know, when films are directed by women in colour, they're much more likely to get strong reviews from women and women of colour than they are from white male critics. It, it may be unconscious bias. There's issues, of course, of what, what people relate to most, who understands the market, or again, you know, people coming with prejudices to the table or having certain preferences. Um, but I think having a wide variety of voices is so important, obviously, not just about people reviewing what's aimed at their specific demographic, but just right across the board to represent the people that actually go to the cinema and the people that are appearing in films and making films as well as watching them. I also asked Rebecca about the impact of male-dominated criticism on the film industry. Yeah, I mean, I remember there was a few years ago a big furore around criticism to do with Ocean's 8, where the cast came out and said, we feel like our film has been treated unfairly by white male critics who don't get it. And there was a huge backlash against those comments. There were female film critics saying, as if I review a film differently, as if I look at things differently to men. And I can see the logic in arguing that because you don't want to feel like your status is going to change. You kind of want the same level of power. But for me, I'm like, it's not about reviewing films differently. And it's not about saying, I watch a film in a different way to a man. It's saying, well, like, you have different lived experiences and you, you have different ways of navigating the world and interacting with other people. And those different life experiences you will bring to your film criticism because none of us are neutral. We're all subjective. So it stands to reason that you might see that film from a perspective that someone else isn't going to have because it taps into something that you yourself experience and relate to. So I think it, for me, it does have a really big impact on the broader conversations that we have about film and what gets talked about and elevated and amplified. And, you know, that's so important now for, especially in a landscape where studios are dominating marketing, exhibition space, production even with franchise filmmaking and it's so hard for indie films to get through and to to make noise and get people I mean especially now post-pandemic actually into cinemas or to subscribe to a streaming service to watch that particular film I mean people talk about say, oh, film criticism is irrelevant but actually I think it's probably more relevant now than ever because film critics are shaping the discussions and leading the discussions that people are having on social media and giving people a sense of like where to go in a market that's really kind of crowded out with these big films. Hi everybody, my name's Helen. And I'm Kobe. 
And we're from Flixwatcher, a podcast in the strip media family. We are a movie podcast and we review films that are just on Netflix in the UK. So if you've ever struggled to find a film on Netflix to watch, we're the podcast for you. We have guests on from other podcasts, big and small, just like these guys that you listen to now. They choose the films and we rate them and discuss them with our unique scoring system. You can find Flixwatcher on any podcast app by searching Flixwatcher. That's F L I X Watcher. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.strips.media to find out more. In recent years, film critics have become more aware of issues like sexism, racism and ableism in the films they review and have begun to talk more about these issues. But that can bring them in for blowback from readers. So I asked Simran whether she has received any blowback for calling out instances of sexism and racism in her work. It's really hard because you get that pushback from all different angles. You know, if you have been to harsh on a film that has a really kind of active and enthusiastic fan base then you know those people are not happy but also if you are critical of something that people perceive to be doing a good thing I'm think I'm thinking of of kind of like films that have been directed by women that I've reviewed uh, that I haven't been unanimously positive about because I think we should hold female creators to the same standards that we hold male creators. I think, you know, the the rigour of the criticism should match like the rigour of the work. I've felt that people have been upset at that as well. So I, I don't know what the solution to that is other than to keep pissing people off. <laughs> I think that is the solution. Exactly. Yeah. Because um, ultimately you can't, you can't let it change your criticism because that's all we have, right, is our opinion. Well, yeah, and I, th- I think there's a, often a pressure to have a position or, or to identify the correct position and to sort of feed into a cultural consensus, which I think is dangerous because then we are evaluating things on the basis of their content or on their story rather than kind of looking at the filmmaking and trying to understand the politics that underpin those stories. I'm thinking maybe of like a film like Misbehaviour, which was a sort of feministy film directed by a woman, actually didn't really nail its colours to the mast in the way that I felt it ought to. And I kind of wrote a critical review of it. And uh, yeah, there was a little bit of pushback there or people maybe thought I was ungenerous but I think to just wave things through when they don't feel like they're doing the work yeah I'm I'm not an advocate for that. This issue of a correct position is one that has come up a little bit. When I asked Rebecca about the coverage of films particularly at film festivals she mentioned another seemingly progressive film that she believes was given undeserved praise. There was a film called Port Authority that showed at Cannes a couple of years ago. And it had a huge buzz around it as a queer film about the New York ballroom scene. And it's about black trans queer kids. And, you know, it it had Martin Scorsese on board as, as an exec producer and it had a woman director. So it ticked all the boxes for something that should be progressive and therefore lauded and people should go and see it. And I walked out of the cinema thinking, what on earth did I just watch? It was awful. And it just, 
it played into every stereotype about queerness and transness. It centered a white cis boy who was straight as well. Like it just, it was a terrible film. But the a lot of the reviews written by white men were like astonishingly good because they didn't actually understand what they were watching. It centered a character who looked like them and they didn't get any of the other politics or subtext to this film. So there was, I think it was Valerie Complex wrote this like quite devastating review of the film that pointed out all its flaws. But by that point, you know, all of the, the these other critics had circulated these rave reviews. So I've seen it go the other way where people feel like they should like something because if they don't like it, maybe that makes them a bad person. And then it has the opposite effect. Like, so it's just, this is why I just think it's so important to have more voices in the room. That's really one of the big issues with representation in film journalism. If you don't have a diverse body of critics, you're going to miss out on a diverse range of thought. You're going to get these kind of situations where people think they have to give a film a certain kind of review because it's a certain kind of film, and they're going to miss out on giving it an actually honest assessment. The different ways in which male and female critics approach films can be illuminating in this regard. So film critic and psychology student Wendy Lloyd, who I spoke to for the book, studied these differences in her master's dissertation. She found that female critics were much more likely to balance feminist criticism of a film with more positive references to things like a film's cinematography or the actor's performances. So they wouldn't just criticise it on a sort of ideological basis, they would take great pains to also consider it from other points of view. In contrast, male critics were much more bold in their criticism. They didn't caveat their negative opinions with positive balancing points, which highlights their greater privilege and the greater perceived authority that they have from particularly male readers. Now, this was even the case when they were dead wrong. For example, uh, blaming the very bad spy thriller Red Sparrow's shortcomings on its star, Jennifer Lawrence, rather than the wider filmmaking team. So there's still a lot of work to be done and still a large disparity to address, both in terms of gender, in terms of LGBT representation, in terms of race, in terms of ableism, you name it. But things are beginning to improve a little for women in film criticism. Anna told me about her podcast, Girls on Film, and the positive impact that that's had on the conversation around film. I do think there has been a change the past few years and it's it's been so encouraging to see because when I was talking about launching a female-focused film podcast before Girls on Film, some people were sort of saying, oh, well, that's too niche. You know, that's just, you know, we're only 51% of the population, for goodness sake. You know, this is just a niche thing. What are you talking about? But what's fascinating, of course, is that there is a great interest for that. And what's lovely is that we hear from male listeners that that makes them think about film differently and these are you know film fans that it's opened their mind to those conversations and they are now really interested to hear more and engage more with those conversations and what's been nice is it's also given me the confidence actually to work more of that into my mainstream reviews so if I'm going on the BBC I'm more likely to bring those subjects up and if I'm being interviewed on the BBC the presenter is more likely to be interested so there has been a change and that is really really good it's a long way to go but that's definitely progress yeah I feel like Girls on Film is a genuine big part of the conversation now like that is the kind of these it is raising these kind of issues every week dependably and and people are now seeing yes that's a legitimate thing to do that's a, that's an important thing to talk about
Thank you. That was the goal. And it's it's so exciting to see it resonate and to see people respond to it. And yeah, that's the idea is to get talking about these things that we're not talking about enough. And I feel like the world's kind of catching up to where we were, but it's still really important. As you say, you know, you mentioned things like disability, you know, there's always something next on the list that people haven't been addressing enough in the film industry. There's probably ones that we haven't even thought of yet on Girls on Film that need to be addressed, you know, so whether it's race, sexuality, sexism, um, disabilities, there's, there's a, you know, mental health. There's a lot of things that we need to think about when it comes to watching movies with empathy and thinking about how movies are made and how people are represented with empathy and sympathy and understanding in a way that doesn't exploit people and in a way that enriches the experience for the viewer, whether they're going through similar experiences or not. I asked Rebecca as well for her opinion on the state of diversity in film criticism. I think as well, outlets are recognising that they have staffs that are too white and too male. And then take steps to address that for about five minutes. But then as soon as they've got a few reviews in from two black women, they're like, okay, well, we'll drop them now because we've done our diversity work for the year. So I think it's small incremental steps, but we need bigger change to happen for it to really make a difference. And Simran also believes that things are gradually beginning to improve for female film critics. I think it's beginning to change slowly but surely. And also like, some of my favorite and kind of most respected writers working right now are women. People like Angelica Jade Bastian, I think is doing incredible work over at Vulture in the States. Tara Judah, I think is a really interesting critic who's sort of writing more in the margins these days. I think there are loads of women who are just kind of doing something a bit different and uh, I'm really interested in, in their work. In the journalism sphere, people at least are aware that there is a problem that needs to be addressed and they are beginning, albeit tentatively and slowly, to address it. They are beginning to hire diverse voices and make an effort to send them not just to review films that match up to their own identity, but also to all films, a diverse range that they can bring their diverse voices to. But there is still a long way to go. Critics are not the most important cog in the filmmaking machine. We do not shape the audience's choices above all else. But we do play a role. Critics can influence audience members to give something a go that they might not otherwise have considered. A few good reviews, and certainly a slew of good reviews, might make you think, maybe, even though this film doesn't look like it's my kind of thing, I should give it a go. And that is valuable, and it does have a role to play. Critics also shape the awards conversation and the sort of prestige end of filmmaking, which filmmakers and studios do care about. Maybe not quite as much as the bottom line, but they do care. And so we have a role to play in shaping the discussion, in shaping the debate, and in shaping the kinds of films that are considered not just, you know, good or great or bad or wrong, but also what's acceptable, what is worthwhile, what is something that's worth considering. And with that in mind, I'm thrilled to have been joined by such great and thoughtful guests this time. Thank you so much again to Anna Smith, Simran Hans and Rebecca Harrison for their thoughts. You can follow the links in the show notes to find out more about them and their work. And I really recommend that you do so. 
And we've almost come to the end of this episode of Women vs. Hollywood. But before we go, here's a couple of our guest recommendations for underrated female-led or female-made films that you may have missed. Here's Anna. I always say Leave No Trace by Deborah Granick. I mean, it's been well-reviewed, but it's a beautiful, beautiful film about a girl who's sort of living off-grid with her father. Wonderful father-daughter story and wonderful, as always with Deborah Granick, a real sense of place and a sense of compassion and a sense of community. And I do think that's something that we do see in a lot of female filmmakers and some men also, but it's something that, as we've seen with Nomadland, that women can really bring to a picture and make it really special. So Leave No Trace. And here's Simran. My kind of classic go-to in, in that that sense would probably be Wonder by Barbara Loden. But I don't know if that counts as underrated anymore because it's kind of been re-canonized. But uh, I think, yeah, I think that's a very interesting film. If you're interested in like 70s American cinema, go and watch that one. So you can find a list of all the films recommended by my guests in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to Women vs. Hollywood. I've been your host, Helen O'Hara, and you can find my book, Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, anywhere that books are sold in the UK. The audiobook is currently available in the US and Canada on Audible, and the book itself will be released in the US and Canada in November. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a five-star review on your podcast app of choice. It really does make a difference. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women versus Hollywood and we will find you. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Lurd. Thanks for listening. See you next time. just heard a stripped media production.